here at Lakeside and your interaction in the lobby, here in the Q&A time personally, is so refreshing to me. And I'm sorry if we haven't been able to complete all of our conversations, but appreciate that so much. And um, just in case you're wondering, this is obviously a reading church. I, when we drove down from Indiana, I put about as many books in the trunk as I could fit. And uh, except for the grandparenting books, the other ones are gone. Uh, there's a couple of the, uh, the Spanish version of loving your wife if you read Spanish. Other, well, some do. <laughs> and except for that, we have the grandparenting books left. So I'm thankful for a reading church. I, I used to tell our staff years ago, a reading church is a growing church. You know, you're growing in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We've had some fun stories, some fun interaction, but let me ask you a pretty sobering question right now. We're all going to die, unless the Lord comes back first, right? We're all going to die, you knew that. I think, I'm almost certain the death rate here is the same as it is up in our part of the country. It's, it's 100%, yeah. So imagine it's your turn to die, and the pastor presiding at your funeral asks some of your now adult grandchildren, if they would like to say anything about you at, the, at your funeral. What would your grandchildren say at your funeral? A few years ago, a couple of my co-pastors and I jointly led the funeral service for a dear lady in our church who had died. And uh, she had a rather large family, including her kids and grandkids. And first few rows at the funeral home were filled just with family members. And we did ask if any of the uh, grandchildren would like to say anything at Grandma's funeral. And one young lady in particular spoke for her siblings and cousins. And she would be in her early 20s at that point. And she looked at these first couple of rows and with a faint smile on her face and tears on her cheeks, she said, Grandma sure loved us, didn't she? But you know what? She loved Jesus even more. And I'm sitting there up front and I found myself crying. I was crying for two reasons. One was, obviously we're going to miss Mary and the legacy that she was leaving her grandkids. But the thought crossed my mind, would my grandchildren be able to say something like that with integrity at my funeral? Would my then adult grandchildren be able to say at my funeral, Papa sure loved us, didn't he? But you know what? He loved Jesus even more. And I began to wonder that day at the funeral home, what would have to happen for that to happen? What would have to happen for that to happen? For our grandchildren to remember us as loving Jesus even more than we love them. And we sure love them a lot, don't we? The Bible often depicts a Christian life as a race. Paul, at least a couple of times, Acts, 1 Corinthians, the author of Hebrews, depict the Christian life as a race. Let's imagine today, for our sake, that it's a relay race. Now, most, if not all of you here today, profess faith in Jesus Christ. Somewhere in your past, whether it was a few years ago or decades ago, someone handed you the gospel baton. Now, they can't make you believe, but they handed you the gospel baton. They talked to you about the Lord. And now for however many years you've been a believer, you've been running your lap of the race, holding on to the gospel baton. You're holding on, you're guarding that gospel baton. But what happens for us? What else are we supposed to do besides hang on to the gospel baton? We are to be passing it on to yet another generation who will then run their lap, life, and pass it on to yet another generation. How does that happen? How do we pass on the gospel baton? It does involve words. We spent our whole last session talking about that. I'm not amused anymore when I hear people say things like, share the gospel, use words if necessary. I want to say, 
Oh, of course words are necessary. <laughs> you can't explain the gospel without using words. We need to talk about Jesus Christ and what he did in his life, what he did in his death, what he did in his resurrection. The gospel requires words. And so when we think about gospelizing, evangelizing, pouring the gospel into our grandchildren, we need to use words. But it's not just words. We back that up with our lives. One day in our morning walk, Gladine said to me, you know, our grandkids might not remember everything we say. They might not remember everything we do. But you know what I'm sure they will remember? What we're passionate about. I've thought about that ever since. You know what the grandkids are going to remember about us? It's what we're passionate about. It's what we're living for. In this session, we want to talk about the power of a godly legacy. How can we impact our children not only with what we say, but with how we live? What we say will either be enhanced or diminished by how we live. Now, I think we all understand that, but maybe we need to say it again. What we say to our grandchildren about their need for Christ, about the value of Christ, the preciousness of Christ, will either be enhanced or diminished by our lives. Because they're watching us. Our grandkids are watching us. And they're assessing the value, the believability, the transferability of what we're saying. Is what you're saying really matter? Because I'm watching your life looking for what difference it makes in your life. There's great power in a Christ-centered life, isn't there? You know, Jesus used different ways of teaching. And a real common way that we think about are parables. He told lots of stories, parables that had a point to them. But occasionally Jesus spoke in Proverbs. And we forget that, that sometimes Jesus used Proverbs. A proverb is something that is so generally true that you can pretty much bank on it. It's not a promise, but it's a general statement that's usually true. And one proverb Jesus said is found in Luke chapter 6, verse 40. And it's this, I'll quote part of it. Well, I'll quote all of it. Jesus said, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Let, let me repeat part of that. Everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Now, when I use the word teacher in our culture, what image immediately comes to your mind? Someone up front talking to a group of people, right? And usually we think of it as rows of desks and kids behind those desks. You know, that's the teacher. When Jesus gave this proverb, that was not the picture he was painting with his words. He w it's a rabbinic invitation. Remember when Jesus was up on the north shore of the lake at the Sea of Galilee and he said to some fishermen, some of you know this story, he said to some fishermen, come follow me. Come follow me. You know what that was? That was a rabbinic invitation. A rabbi inviting students to follow him. And the way they did it back then, I mean, there were classrooms. I'm not saying there were never classrooms. But a common way people were trained was to link up with a rabbi, a teacher, and then follow their teacher doing life with that rabbi for a season. And you would listen, you would watch, you would interact, you would answer questions, you would ask questions and listen for his answers. When Jesus said to those fishermen, come follow me, he was speaking as a rabbi, as a teacher, inviting these potential pupils to join him in his school of learning, his peripatetic, his walking around school, that as they did life together for the next three years, they would watch Jesus do miracles, and they would be amazed, and they would ask him questions, and they would listen to parables, and they would ask Jesus the meaning of the parables, and they were told to go do certain things and report back, and Jesus asked them questions, and they would ask Jesus questions like, Lord, would you teach us how to pray? That was the rabbinic school. So when Jesus said, student is not above his teacher, but every student, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. That's the model he was presenting in that day. And it's helpful for us to understand that. In other words, the more time you spend... Let's use the word mentor. Because in our culture, that's probably 
closer to the picture Jesus was painting. The more time you spend with your mentor, the more you'll be like your mentor. That your mentor's priorities, your mentor's preferences, your mentor's passions become your priorities, your preferences, your passions. Now, we're here as grandparents or grandparents-to-be, so how does that relate to our lives? The more, our grand, the more time our grandchildren spend with us, the more they become like us. Now, is that scary or what? <laughs> the more time our grandchildren spend with us, the more they become like us. In other words, our lives can have and do have a huge impact on the people, the younger people that we're training in life. There is great power in a legacy of life. Now, one topic that I enjoy teaching on is biblical leadership. Some of you longtime members of Lakeside will remember Rich and Barbara Hines. I'm going to be with Rich in March in Chicagoland uh, teaching on biblical leadership to a group of prison chaplains. And I've been interacting with, with Rich the last day or so on schedule and stuff like that. And I'm excited. I'm excited. I love talking about biblical leadership. But you know, when I teach on biblical leadership, I always emphasize this factor. And it's transferable to grandparenting. And that is the power of a godly legacy. The power of a godly legacy. Words are so important. But those words should be backed up by our lives and we see this in the scripture. Do you remember what Paul told Timothy in his last letter? 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Some of you are familiar with this passage. He said, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. And so the Apostle Paul, in the very last letter he had to his son in the faith, he says, I remember your grandma, Lois. I know your mother, Eunice. In the faith that they had, I see in you too, Timothy, my spiritual son. And he's reminding Timothy of this legacy he received from his mother and grandmother. Apparently, Timothy had a father who wasn't saved. We, we don't know a whole lot about that, except that Timothy most likely had a Greek father, and it's quite likely from reading between the lines that Timothy's dad wasn't a believer. But his mother was, and his grandmother was, and these faithful ladies taught Timothy the gospel. You know, we get to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and a lot of us have memorized that passage about all scriptures breathed out by God and it's profitable. Did you ever read the verses right before that? I want to show you something that maybe we skim over sometimes. When Paul was writing to Timothy about the scriptures, before that he said, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, listen to this, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Let's put value on what Lois and Eunice taught Timothy. Their words were so important. They taught Timothy the scriptures that were able to make him wise through faith in Christ Jesus. By the way, I just want us to appreciate something. What Bible did Lois and Eunice have to work with? The Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament yet. <laughs> and yet these dear ladies knew their scriptures. They knew the Old Testament. And from the Bible they had, they taught this little boy. It says from infancy, from toddlerhood, you've been acquainted with the scriptures that are able to make you wise through faith in Christ Jesus. This dear mother and grandmother taught him the gospel from the Old Testament. What part of the Bible is about Jesus? All of it, from cover to cover. <laughs> From Genesis to Revelation, it's all about Jesus. It all points to him. And these dear ladies taught him that. But what I'm pointing out here is that Paul took it a step farther. He said, Timothy, remember what you were taught. Remember what you were taught by your mother and grandmother about salvation in Christ Jesus. But he also tells him, remember from whom you learned it. And he doesn't explain that, but I have to think that Paul's telling Timothy... 
the example of your mother and grandmother backs up what they told you. Remember your mother's life. Remember your grandmother's life. That I, I've seen the faith that these dear ladies had, and I see it in you too, Timothy. And he wants Timothy to go through the rest of years remembering that, that he learned the scriptures from his mother's grandmother and from his mentor, Paul. He wants Timothy to remember the people, their lives, the lives of the people who told him the gospel. And we see that in the Bible. And so if you and I, we're telling our grandkids the gospel, but we want our lives to back it up. We want what we say to be enhanced by how we live and not diminished by how we live. So what does that mean? What, what does a godly legacy look like? Well, there is a Christ-reflecting godliness. One factor is having a Christ-reflecting godliness, a model for the younger generations to follow. If you have a print Bible or you have it electronically, look at Titus 2 with me for a few minutes. Titus chapter 2. And I bet some of you ladies have been in Bible studies on Titus 2, but I want to show you something here. I don't know how many times I read the book of Titus before I caught on to what's going on in Titus chapter 2. Do you remember the background of the book of Titus? Paul and his missionary journeys would often plant churches, start churches, and then he would move on. But in moving on, sometimes he would leave some of his missionary helpers, sometimes he would leave some of his co-workers there to work with this budding church, this nascent church, and uh, he would move on and do church planting in another city. Crete was a rough neighborhood. Crete's an island in the Mediterranean, right? And it was known in the first century as just being what we would call a rough neighborhood. It, it was not a pleasant place to live. But isn't it amazing, God's sovereign grace, that he began saving people across the island of Crete. And there were these churches scattered around the island that were just getting started. And Paul tells Titus, I'm going to leave you on the island and I want you to go around these churches. I want you to find qualified men to be elders in the churches. Teach these people the gospel, Titus. And if you want a good summary of the gospel, you can see it in chapter 3, those opening verses, the first five verses of the third chapter of Titus. He wants Titus to teach the gospel and probably by implication encourage the elders to teach the gospel in these young churches across the island in these rough neighborhoods. But then you get to chapter 2 and he says, but as for you, teach what, are you looking at it with me? Teach what? accords with sound doctrine. I don't know how many times I read that without thinking, what, what's he mean? Teach what accords with sound doctrine. If you read the context, what he's saying is, Titus, teach them the gospel, but then show them what difference that makes in everyday life. Show them how the gospel gets fleshed out in everyday life. And then he tells Titus, think about the different categories of people. There are old men. Raise your hand, men. There are old ladies. Wear it as a badge of honor. <laughs> there are young ladies and there are young... Did some of you raise your hand? There are young, la young ladies and there are young men. And he's saying, Titus, show the people, teach the people in these young churches, tell these young believers how the gospel makes a difference in how they live everyday life. Show them how ordinary Christians can live extraordinary lives because they're empowered by an extraordinary gospel. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. I think one of the most helpful things I've ever heard on this, someone else taught me this years ago, the imperatives of the Bible are never naked. <laughs> What's an imperative? Do you remember eighth grade English class? Oh, you don't? Some of you do. Okay. An imperative is a command. What's an indicative? It's a statement of fact. I mean, sometimes we read the Bible and we're just reading a, like a list of rules. Oh, I need to do that. Oh, I need to do that. Oh, I'm not supposed to do that. We're just reading a, like a list of rules. We're just looking for the imperatives. Look in your Bible and you'll notice the imperatives always stand on the indicatives. The commands are always clothed in statements of fact of God's grace. Classic example, the book of Ephesians. 
The first three chapters of Ephesians. Do you know how many commands, do you know how many imperatives are in the first three chapters of Ephesians? I think there's one. But you get to the last three chapters of Ephesians and what do you find? You find a lot of imperatives. Some that relate to us here. Like, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's an imperative. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. That's an imperative. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. That's an imperative. Fathers, bring your children up in the admonition and nurture of the Lord. That's an imperative. But do you see where those are? For the first three chapters, what has Paul done? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then he spends three chapters just talking about these marvelous blessings of Jesus Christ. Look at his grace. Look at his grace. Look at how kind he's been to you. Chapter after chapter, three chapters, he pours out God's grace. You get to chapter four and he says, now I urge you brothers, walk worthy of that calling. Walk worthy of that calling. Remember whose you are. Remember whose you are. Do you belong to God because of Jesus Christ? And standing on these indicatives, standing on these statements of fact of his amazing grace, may his grace get worked out in your everyday life, your everyday relationships. So let me say it again. Help me finish this, men. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. The indicative, the statement of fact is Christ loved the church. The imperative is, now husbands, you love your wife that way. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And the church is the indicative there, submitting to the Lord. Now, wives, you submit to your husbands that way. Do you see that pattern? There's always, the the imperatives are always firmly standing on and clothed with the indicatives of God's grace. Ephesians is balanced three and three. But you get to the book of Romans, for instance, and this is a rabbit trail, but it's a good one. Have you ever noticed how Paul begins chapter 12 of Romans? I urge you, brothers, I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it memorized in the ESV. I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, submit your bodies as a living sacrifice. I urge you, brothers, on the mercies of God. What mercies of God? Well, we just spent 11 chapters talking about the mercies of God. He spent all this time talking about the mercies of God, and he says, now, I urge you, based on the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Titus, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. The sound doctrine is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Titus, teach people the gospel But then show them what that looks like in life. Show them how the gospel transforms the life of a believer. And I want to show us old guys something. Look at verse 2. Older men, that's us. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, sound in love, sound in steadfastness. Sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. We have a saying in our culture that should not be true of Christian older men. Grouchy old men. Grouchy old men. Do you know why that's a saying in our culture? Because a lot of old men are grouchy. That's why. A lot of old men are grouchy. They grouch about the weather, grouch about the economy, grouch about politics, grouch, 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 grouch. Brothers, older brothers, if the young people in the church, if the young people in the church say, we need, we need some models, we need someone to show us how to live the Christian life, we need some men that are solid in faith, solid in love, we need some anchors in our lives, we need some anchors in our church, of someone that will show us what it means to be so anchored in the gospel that there's a steadiness there, there's a gospel sweetness. I know, the old guys in our church. That's what the young people should be thinking. They shouldn't be thinking, oh, the old guys in our church are those grouchy old men. They're thinking, the old men in our church, man, I want to hang with those guys. I want to hang with those guys because those guys, man, they've been living in the gospel so long that there's a 
steadiness to their lives. There's a soundness to their life. And they are sound in faith. The world around us seems to be rocking. These old guys, man, they're steady. Their faith in Christ is so solid that they don't seem to be rocked by what's going on in the world. Their eyes are fixed on Christ. There's a steadiness to these old men that they see. Christ is on his throne. Christ is sovereign. Don't let the world scare you. Our Savior is the King. We old men, that's what the young people should think of when they look at us. They see how the gospel is getting worked out in our lives. And they say the old men in the church, they are anchored in Christ. And they're the models in our church of a steadiness in love, a steadiness in faith. They're dignified, self-controlled. When the young women in the church say, boy, I sure could use someone to show me how to live out the Christian life in my home. Older women, and by the way, I think the best explanation of that I've heard, I think it came from John MacArthur, is that if you're old enough to have raised a family, even if you never had kids, if you're at that age where you could have raised a family, or maybe you did raise a family, you qualify. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. Not slanderers or slaves of much want to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. So when the gospel gets rootedness, when the, the gospel gets fruit in the lives of an older lady, a sister in Christ, there should be this effectiveness of the gospel in her life. That she's not a busybody, she's not gossipy. Her tongue's under control. And instead of living for herself, she's giving of her life to the younger generation of women. She's, she's very gladly, very intentionally pouring her life into younger women. Maybe her own daughters or daughters-in-law or maybe granddaughters. The younger women in the church, she's saying, Christ has been so good to me. And I, I want to... I want to pass on to the coming generation the grace of God and, and how it applies in everyday life. And I, I, I want to hang with these younger women. I want to mentor them and show them what it means to be a woman who's following Christ and saturated in grace. That's the way the gospel gets effectiveness, has fruitfulness in the life of an older woman. Titus, show the people how the gospel bears fruit how the gospel is effective in these different seasons of life. For the old guys, show them how the gospel impacts, shapes their lives. For the older women, show, show the older ladies in the church how the gospel shapes the season of life, where it's not live selfishly. It's live in giving your life for the coming generations. And we read that and we say, Woo, how in the world am I supposed to do that? Where am I ever going to get the gumption? Where, where am I ever going to get the power to live that way as an old guy, as a, an older lady? Someone read to me the very first word in verse 11. Four. Yeah, if some, most translations have the word four at the beginning. Four. He's going to show us how this works. He's going to show us where this power comes from. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and so on. Sometimes we naively approach the Christian life as if it's a, I guess I'm just going to do it. I guess I'm just going to be a godly older guy. I'm going to do it. You know, or maybe it's a female voice saying, I know, I need to be a better person. I'm just going to try really hard to be a godly older woman. How does that work? It doesn't. You know, if we try to just be good on our own, we tend to swing the pendulum. You know, we might, we might come up with a list of rules for ourselves that are rather attainable. <laughs> we check off our box and say, what a good boy I am, you know. <laughs> You know, we look and we say, you know, I think I'm doing pretty good. And then we realize, man, I blew it. And then a pendulum swings from pride to despair. I'm a failure. 
But Paul tells us how we live out the gospel. We live out the gospel by being empowered by the gospel. For it's the grace of God, he says, trains us. It would be like a coach or a piano teacher or a school teacher. It is the grace of God that trains us to do what? To say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. So when we're tempted to go back to our BC life, you know, or before Christ life, and live for those things, it's the gospel that trains us to say no to that. And so, you know, let's imagine here that someone's become a Christian and they're, they're wanting to live by the gospel, live for Christ. And Satan says, get back here. You belong to me. Get back here. As a Christian, we can, and I know I'm not trying to be too melodramatic here, but as a Christian, we can in a sense say, no, I don't belong to you anymore. I've been redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. I belong to him. And we can say the gospel trains us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and say yes to godliness and self-control. And so as older men, as older women, living out the gospel in front of our grandchildren, we talk to them about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they're not just listening to us, they're watching us. And they want to know, is this true? Kids today tend to be rather cynical at times. Now, we're all hypocritical in ways. But by God's grace, to diminish the hypocrisy, so that when our grandchildren look at us, and we talk to them about Jesus Christ, the preciousness of Christ. We talk to them about the value of the gospel. That they look at us as grandpa and grandma. And they say, wow, you know what? I've seen that in your life, grandpa. I've seen that in your life, grandma. That what we're saying to them is enhanced by how we live. That we're living out the gospel. We're living out what accords with sound teaching. We're living out the gospel, and how we live in our season of life. There's great power in a godly legacy, and that comes from living out the gospel. But there's a second element to having a, a, a Christ-like legacy, and that is to have a passionate joy in Christ. To have a passionate joy in Christ. And I'll, I'll be more brief on this one, but I think it's important. Remember what Paul said his personal testimony to the Philippians? He says, for me to live is... Christ and to die as gain. For me to live as Christ. Where did he write that from? From prison. <laughs> he wrote that from prison. And he says, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. A little bit later in that same letter in chapter 3, verses 7 through 8, he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ. And what Paul's saying is, is I look at the world around me and all the world has to offer and I compare that to Christ. This looks to me like garbage in the presence of Christ. I'll take Christ. It's a value statement. One of the shortest parables Jesus told was the parable of the treasure in the field. I'll read it to you. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Now, if you'll let me use my sanctified imagination, I, I hope it's sanctified. It's being sanctified. See, what happened back then? The reason this parable would make sense in that day is that back then they didn't have banks like we have today. So if you had some extra cash, you inherited some coins or jewels, and you wanted to hide it, keep it, what would you do with it? You, you would bury it. You would put it in a pottery jar, most likely. You'd put it in a pottery jar and go hide it somewhere in the field. Well, just imagine. I mean, a parable's a story, right? It's just a story to prove a point. But let's pretend there's something behind this, right? And so here, somebody goes and buries a treasure in this field. Let's just imagine that he up and dies and never told anyone where it was. And years go on, decades go on, and it's forgotten. And some guy rents that field. He's a tenant farmer. He's renting that field. And one day, he's plowing behind his donkey or his ox. And he hears this, he's like, what in the world is that? And he looks down, and here there's a broken jar with coins and jewels spilling out. Covers it back up. <laughs> What's that saying? Finders, keepers? <laughs> I 
And he goes home and he says to his wife, he goes, honey, we are going to have the mother of all yard sales. <laughs> Sell it all. And she goes, have you lost your mind? And he says, no, trust me. I found a treasure that's worth more than anything we have. It's worth more than everything we have. It's that Jesus said, enjoy. He went home and sold all that he had and bought that field. Jesus said, that's what the kingdom of heaven's like. That's what finding Jesus is like. And for us as grandparents, that we value Jesus Christ so highly that when our grandchildren see us, they honestly believe that our value system is that Jesus Christ is more precious to us than anything this world has to offer. Jesus Christ is more precious to us than everything this world has to offer. If we are going to have a godly legacy on our grandchildren, we want to leave a godly legacy that's Christ-centered, founded in the gospel, fueled by the gospel, and we want to have a joy in Christ. And if you're listening to me right now and you're saying, you know, Larry, thank you, but I ain't there. You know, a campfire sometimes, the embers barely glowing on the campfire. It's not burning too bright. We've all been there. And maybe you're there right now and you're saying, you're telling me I should have this passionate joy in Christ in front of my grandkids, but my, my fire is barely glowing. Well, let me encourage you that the Holy Spirit can change you. The Holy Spirit can stir your heart. And I mentioned last night that if we say, Holy Spirit, when you're reading your Bible, if you say, Holy Spirit, show me Christ, he's not going to be offended by that question. He's not going to be stingy in answering that question. The, the, the older I get, the more precious this truth is to me. That the Holy Spirit wants, the third member of the Trinity, wants the second member of Trinity to be valued and reflected in the people of God. He wants that to happen. And so if we ask his help, we say, Holy Spirit, show me Christ. Show me the preciousness of Christ. The Holy Spirit isn't going to be grudging on that. He's not going to cross his arms and lean back. He's going to lead toward you and say, yes, thank you for asking. And we're going to notice in the Bible, we're going to notice in our own Bible reading, Christ. And he's going to be increasingly valuable to us. That we see him as increasingly precious. And that joy is increased in our lives. And when the people around begin to see the joy of Christ in us. That we love talking about Jesus Christ. We love singing about Jesus Christ. We love learning about Jesus Christ. And when we're around our grandchildren, a student, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. And when our grandchildren are around us, the values that we're living out are in the Lord's normal providence affecting them. So that when our grandchildren see us, living a life centered on Christ when they see in us a joy in Christ, that in God's kindness, in God's grace, that begins to be reflected in their lives. Jesus said that. But for that to happen, let me give you one more word, and that's the word with. The word with. The power of with. Now, we are living in a... I'll, I'll explain this concisely as I can. I mentioned last night one book on grandparenting that really launched me in thinking more about this personally and in teaching others with Josh Mulvihill's book just called Biblical Grandparenting. But Josh originally wrote that as his PhD dissertation at Southern. And I was reading the more academic version of that before it was printed in popular form. But... Um, Josh points out something. The first half of that dissertation, he was showing the sociological decline of the influence of grandparents in North America. That if you go back before the Industrial Revolution, families tended to live intergenerationally. And if you've heard stories about our grandparents or maybe great-grandparents, you remember hearing stories about the farm. And uh, maybe grandpa and grandma even lived on the farm too. And that was pretty common Grandparents maybe ate some of their meals with the whole family on a regular basis. Grandpa would be out there working with the son, the adult son, uh, putting in crops, milking cows, whatever, until he couldn't do it anymore, but he was still respected and valued in the family. 
And there was this intergenerational impact in families in North America. But then the Industrial Revolution happened, and now there are factories, and the factories are in cities. And, and Dad needs to go to the city to get a job because the farm can't support everyone anymore. And it's regrettable, but we have to do it. And so the families bifurcated. The families split apart, where one section of the family moves to the city to work in the factory. But over time, that just became a way of life. So no longer is it regrettable. It's just kind of accepted. But then if you move ahead another generation or two, that's not only accepted, but now it's celebrated. And our current North American culture is, and I realize I'm in Florida when I say this, but there is a, there's been a movement in the last generation that when you reach your golden years, the best thing to do is to move to a warmer climate and live among your peers. You know, go, go live with other old people and you spend your time doing what you always wanted to do and didn't have time or money to do because you're raising your family. So now spend your money and time going out to eat or going cruising or playing golf three times a week or whatever, you know, and, and it's for you now. You paid your dues, you did your time, now it's your golden years. You live out your golden years thinking about yourself. And Josh points out that now there's been this bifurcation in the family, there's been this split and so what we have in our culture are what some people are calling grand orphans. Grand orphans, they hardly know their grandparents. Their grandparents maybe come to visit at Christmas or Thanksgiving, you pick, you know, and maybe call on your birthdays, whatever. And grandparents are thinking, it's my time now to do what I want to do. And yet, if we're going to have a godly influence on our grandkids, we have to do, I realize we've got various scenarios in here, so I'm trying to be sympathetic, empathetic, but we need to do what we can. We need to do what we can. And for some people, that does get pretty radical. I mentioned last night Larry Fowler, who's the president of Legacy Grandparenting Coalition. He actually moved from Chicago to California to be near his grandkids. And I know some of you spend part of your year with your grandkids. And we have a couple families in our church that are our generation that moved from Colorado just recently because their grandkids are in northern Indiana and they moved from the mountains of Colorado to the cornfields of Indiana. That took a calling from God. <laughs> you know, for some people, that's what they need to do. They need to move to be closer. But not everyone can do that, and I'm not trying to lay guilt trips on you if you can't do that. But if we're going to have an influence by our lives, there's got to be an intentionality of being with our grandchildren. So does it mean maybe budgeting more time and money? Instead of going on that cruise, do you say, we'd love to go on, no offense. Uh, <laughs> instead of going on that cruise, maybe we need to spend that money to fly to wherever your grandkids are, Dallas or New York or whatever. Why don't we just spend some time going there to be with them? Or invite them to our place. Or, uh, or even if you can't travel. Some of you physically traveling is just so difficult or maybe too expensive. There are ways you can be with your grandkids today virtually. And um, we have Zoom call every Tuesday afternoon with some of our grandkids that live in another state. And we do a half hour Bible study with each one. So it might take a couple hours. There's four of them. You know, but we talk to them on the phone or the Zoom call. And it's like, what is a blessing this week? How can we pray for you? Well, it's been a challenge. We do Bible studies with them. We pray with them. But we want to be with them, but not only with them, but with them in an honest, open way. And if they're going to see the power of the gospel, we need to be real. We need to be honest. Let me give you a quick story on that. We were talking to our Michigan grandkids not too long ago. And... Um, Asked Titus, our grandson, when it was his turn, how can we pray for you, buddy? And he said, pray that I would be patient with my sister. Now we happen to know his sister. <laughs> and we could understand his prayer request. <laughs> and she tends to pick on him. But I was fascinated with his prayer request. I said, buddy, you know what? That's so encouraging that you didn't say, pray that my sister quits picking on me. But you pray. You said, pray that I be patient with her. I said, that's an evidence of God's grace in your life, buddy, that, that, that you wanted us to pray that way. And he says, how can I pray for you, Papa? Well, the night before, I had gotten sharp with my words with a particular lady who was here in the room with us. 
And I'd gotten sharp with my words and I was impatient. And the Lord had convicted me that night and in the morning I had to ask Gladine's forgiveness. And so when Titus said, how can I pray for you, Papa? I said, buddy, pray that I would be patient with your Gigi. Pray that I'd be patient with your Gigi because sometimes I get impatient and doesn't honor Christ. And to hear our 11-year-old grandson praying for me was so humbling. But I wanted him to see that Christians sometimes sin, but we can run to Jesus. We can run to Jesus and ask his forgiveness. The power of with. You're not only physically with, but you're living out the gospel with them, whether it's on a video call or face-to-face, whether it's every day or six times a year or whatever. But when you're with them, with them, there's a power in being with them. So I would encourage you, uh, I realize that many of you have grandchildren that live in other states, even other countries. Look for ways to be with your grandchildren either virtually or physically, budget time, budget money if you can to be with them. We have some acquaintances in the Christian grandparenting movement that every year they sit down and work on their budget and their calendar, and they budget time and money to be with each of their grandchildren on their birthday. And for some time, that means flying sometimes. And I'm thinking, whoa, that's a sacrifice. They're giving up eating out. They're giving up other ways of spending money in their older years because they're saying, we need that money for flight. We're going to, we made a commitment. We're going to be with our, each grandchild on his birthday. You know, everybody's situation's different. So I'm not, I'm not giving you a list of what you have to do. But setting this pattern that we want to leave a godly, Christ-centered legacy with our grandkids. So we want to model, we want to model the effectiveness of the gospel in everyday life. When we talk to the grandkids about the gospel, we want to show them by how we're living, just normal life. How we're living as the normal life as a Christ-centered, gospel-empowered Christian, what that looks like. We want to show them joy in Christ, that the Lord, the Lord is precious to us. But we need to look for ways to get time with them, with them, that that influence can, can bear fruit in their lives by God's grace. This is such an important subject, and I'm not sure what all I haven't said, but if you are wondering... You know, how does this get fleshed out? We can talk further. I see they've already spread lunch for us. And so I don't want to delay too much longer here. But let me just encourage you, as you think through your life, maybe you have grandkids in the same church, you can be worshiping with them. They can see your joy in Christ as you worship. They hear you praying. Uh, They see you reading God's word. They hear you sharing God's word. All these ways that we're with them, showing them the value of Christ, the preciousness of his gospel. I'll pray for us. I assume pray for lunch as well in a few minutes, but let me just ask briefly questions on this you want to talk about before we go to lunch. Okay, you're hungry. I understand. (laughs) There is one. Okay. This really breaks my heart, but I have a grandson I'm not allowed to see, so what do I do about that? Yeah. How do I reach him? I mean, how do... How do you reach someone you have no contact with? Yes. Yeah, I mentioned this last night, I think, briefly, that uh, the middle generation are the gatekeepers. And sometimes they close the gate partway and they limit us. You can have contact with our kids, but we don't want you giving them your religion. Sometimes they close the door. Sometimes they lock the door. And uh, that's a very difficult situation. Tanya, I don't know that I have all the answers, but obviously we pray there might be small things you can do, even sending you know, birthday cards that have scripture in. But one thing I would encourage all of us to think about is why did our kids or kids-in-law close that door? Why did they close that door? Is there something maybe, I'm not saying this is your case, Tanya, but speaking to the group, is there something we need to make right with our kids? Why did they just close the gate on me? It could be truly spiritual warfare, so I'm acknowledging possibility that there's nothing you need to confess, but is the Holy Spirit convicting you that maybe you said something or did something that was unkind, unthoughtful, and the kid says, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be around that, and they close the door. So start with their own hearts. Lord, is there something, is there something you would show me that I need to make right with my kids? 
And in the chapter on building a relationship with the middle generation, I think I talk about that briefly in the book. But to do what you can to build a relationship with the middle generation. We want to get to our grandkids, but the parents are the gatekeepers. So if they're closing that door, what can you do? Maybe the focus should be on the middle generation for a while, showing a lot of love, whatever you can do, even if it's they don't want you in their, your life. You're praying for them, not just your grandkids, maybe remembering their birthday, Christmas, whatever, but you're loving on your middle generation. Trying to build a relationship of love, not manipulative, but trying to build a relationship of love and trust and uh, see what God will do. Maybe over time you hear a click and you realize, hey, that door's unlocked. I wonder what's next. Maybe they'll begin to open it up again. Yeah, we've seen that at times where doors that were locked get opened maybe years after they were locked. But you have that. And just as a word of encouragement, this rarely happens, but I, I know of one lady who was blocked from her grandkids. And nevertheless, she would wrap a gift for the child each birthday and write a note, a card, and put him in a box with a prayer that when that child reached adulthood, she might be able to present the gifts she had bought all along and give them the cards that she had written all along and express her love. And I don't remember all the details, but if I remember correctly, a few years ago, an adult grandchild actually came to Indiana from another state and initiated contact with Grandma for the first time in years. You know, and now the grandchild's an adult. So sometimes... And and another thing that someone else told me was, even if the Lord doesn't answer that prayer in our lifetime, we don't know what God might do with our grandchildren, grandchildren after we're in heaven. So... We don't die in despair. We die in faith, realizing that God is still at work. But those are very painful situations. Why don't we pray? Let's pray for Tanya too. Thank the Lord for the food. If I understand it, we get our food out here and then come back into this room and eat at these tables. And when it looks like most of you are all fed up, I mean done eating, um, we'll start our last session. How's that sound? Let's thank the Lord. Heavenly Father, here we are eating again. (laughs) Another reminder of you giving us our daily bread. Thank you for the food. Thank you for this church, their kind hospitality. Thank you for these dear brothers and sisters who are wanting to know how to live out the gospel with our grandchildren. Lord, we do pray for Tanya and that closed gate and her family. I pray, Lord, that in your kindness you would move on the hearts of whoever it is that's locked that gate. There might be a change, there might be a softening, relationships would be restored. And Lord, there are other people in the room that have experienced similar things, and I would ask that you would give hope, that you would give faith and joy even in the midst of the pain, and that, Lord, we might have opportunities to declare your gospel to yet another generation, that our grandchildren would set their hope in you. Thank you for our food, Lord. Thank you for the time we have together. In Jesus' name, amen.